Good morning and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumser, and today we're going to be talking with Jim Stroud, who is the eternal industry veteran and these days is hanging his hat with a company called Click IQ. How are you, Jim? I'm doing fine, sir. How are you? I am on top of the world. The sun's out. For a moment, the California rains have stopped, and so things couldn't be better. Ah, I get the image of a Disney movie with birds singing and dancing animals, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is California, and and Disney is just a reflection of what it's actually like to live here. And so few people really understand that. (laughs) So introduce yourself. Tell people about Jim Stroud. Sure, sure. Well, I have been in the sourcing and recruiting world for two decades, which is hard for me to believe. And I've been fortunate enough to work for such companies as Google, Microsoft, Siemens, Ransett, SourceRite. And quite recently now, I am the VP of Product Evangelist for North America for ClickIQ, which is a automated job advertising platform startup in the UK, which is now branching out into US because we're taking over. It's great. It's it's a lot of fun to be um, on one of these world-bending things. So tell me a little bit more about how you got there. What what do you do, Jim Stroud? That is a good question. It's a question my uh, my family asks me all the time. <laughs> well, basically, yeah. um, in my present role, I uh, evangelize Click IQ by talking to good people like yourself and also potential clients and show them the virtues of our product, how it can save them time and money on a job advertising budget. Also operate in a thought leadership capacity where I speak at conferences, speak to people at different events about the world of work, future work in particular as well, and also produce content that draws people's attention to Click IQ and the things that we have to offer. When not doing those things, I am speaking at SourceCon as an MC, or I'm writing a book, or I'm producing a podcast of my own, or a video series all about the future of work or future of life and everything in between. So how does one get on your list so that one knows about where these podcasts and books and feature-length movies and Netflix series reside? Yeah, everything and anything anyone wants to know about me, they can see on my website, which is Jim Stroud, J-I-M-S-T-R-O-U-D, JimStroud.com. Follow me there. They can connect with me on LinkedIn, which is also a good place, or on Twitter, at Jim Stroud. At Jim Stroud. Okay, so now we've done the Jim Stroud thing. Tell me about Click IQ. What's the deal with Click IQ? Sure. Well, Click IQ is Push a button and then I get smart? <laughs> uh, well, not quite, not quite. ClickIQ is an automated job advertising platform. It sits on top of your ATS. It takes your job and posts them out for you. So, so it's sort of like a central hub for all of your media, for all of your job advertising distribution. It's also a central hub for your media spin. So if you have relationships, say, with Indeed, Nuvu, uh, ZipRecruiter, and several others, you can sort of manage it all from one place. You also can manage how much money you're spending on different job boards one place, and it also will optimize your spend. So essentially, without going too long, if you wanted to distribute your jobs to 100 different job boards and you are getting the clicks and applications you need, then there's no need to spend extra money because you're already getting what you need from the organic placement of the jobs. But if the jobs are not performing and you're not getting clicks and applications, then those jobs will move to the next level where it goes in the premium spots on different job boards. After that, it would go to social, 
so your job adverts would appear on Facebook and Instagram where people can engage with a chatbot. And if for some reason you're still not getting clicks and applications, then it would go out to Google where people can see it through different Google ads. So your job advertising will be seen, and it will save you money because if it's working uh, on one job board and it's cheaper than the other, well, we'll keep showing it on a cheap spot and save you money while getting the clicks and applications that you so desire. So you get clicks and applications. How do we know if the applications are any good? Does that matter, or is it just volume that you're after? Well, the quality of the applicants, I can't judge per se, because once they're in your ATS, we, they're sort of out of our, our reach to monitor. So I can't really speak to that, but I can speak to getting you to clicks and applications from your advertising. Certainly, we can do oh, that. that. That's interesting. So it takes administrative work away from somebody who would buy job ads, but it sort of gives you more work to do evaluating candidates. Is that fair? So, yeah, I guess you can say that. I guess you can say that. But you can also, we also have different rules you can put in place as well. So let's say that you only want 20 applicants, you know, this week. So you can say, okay, once you hit a number of 20 applicants, take the job down. You certainly have that control as well. That's interesting. We could have a long conversation. You'd probably have a, a pretty interesting idea about whether that causes discrimination in hiring. Is, is uh, you, can, you can measure quantity, but can you account for the varying levels of access? You know, women tend to not apply as quickly as men, for example. Mm-hmm. All right, and so if, so if you set a hard timeline, then it might be that you get more men than women. I don't know. That's I don't know. You're I, sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. But then it's like, what kind of time limit should you put on a job ad? I mean, or how many applications? Because you could say, leave a job up for 100 years, and in the 101st year, three women would have applied. So that means it's discriminatory because you cut it off at the 100th year, <laughs> you know, or you got uh, 100 applications. So to speak, rather, I'm sorry, 100 years, 100 applications, rather. And then once you cut it off at 100 applications, then, you know, the one first person may have been a, I don't know, a blind and deaf minority woman. I, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to, to sort of qualify. But it's an interesting question altogether, though. I don't know. Yeah, well, what a great offering. Are you following the evolution of intelligent tools elsewhere in recruiting besides at Click IQ? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see... I see a lot of activity in this space, and they sort of all fall into uh, different categories. And without mentioning any names, for some that I've seen and some that I can't say that I've seen, different categories you can sort of put these AI tools in would be AI for silver medalists, is what I call it. So like if you're mining ATS for people who interviewed well but didn't get hired due to some other more qualified candidate, uh, this trend would find people in ATS who were Silver medalists in one role uh, didn't get the job, but perhaps they're ideal for another role. And I'm seeing a lot of tools around that, finding the gold in, or rather the silver, in the ATS. Then I'm also seeing AI for anti-bias. Certainly seeing a lot of that. All this developed to fight unconscious bias, which was, of course, a huge topic last year. Still, Still sort of a huge topic this year because of all the diversity and inclusion conversation going on. Seeing a lot of AI for candidate engagement because nobody likes uh, the black hole of resumes <laughs> that ATS has become. So you'll see a lot of chatbots, uh, which can bridge the divide between uh, candidate screening and application status. 
and also around the AI for recruitment marketing. See a lot of that as well. Application of marketing, best practices, analytics, multi-channel use, targeted messaging, that kind of thing. So a lot of the AI tools that are out there, even the ones that are not AI but claim to, <laughs> claim to be, they tend to be in one of those kind of categories, and, and that's what I see a lot. It's sort of, um, it, I see it all, just to, just to wax poetic for a minute, I see it all very interesting from the standpoint of I like seeing a lot of new technology out there and doing a lot of different things, especially if it takes away repetitive tasks. But I think there is a danger, not, well, not a danger, maybe a word of caution from all the AI tools, because I think there is a chance of people becoming overly reliant on those tools rather than human judgment. And so I think no matter what AI tool you use or any kind of super tech tool you use, you have to have a human in the loop. Otherwise, you're opening yourself up for terminators to come. Case in point, I was reading, actually podcasting about this recently, about this predictive algorithm that IBM has where they have said that they can predict with 90% accuracy who's going to leave the organization. And so once their magic algorithm says that John is going to leave the organization for whatever reason, let's go out and reach out to John now, offer him a promotion, maybe a little extra money, maybe uh, give him uh, some sweet assignments to work on so we can keep him in the, on the payroll a little bit longer. And so that's certainly cool if it, it can indeed predict a 95% accuracy. But on the flip side of that, it makes me concerned because I'm wondering, if the machine says John is going to leave, let's go ahead and promote him. Or maybe if the machine says John's not going to leave, let's not worry about advancing his career because the machine says he's going to be leaving us anyway. Instead, let's, let's focus on Jim because the algorithm says he's going to be here for a long time, and let's go ahead and give him better opportunity. You know? So, yeah, that's a little, bit of a, a little bit of a rant there. What do you think of that? Well, you know, the, there is one of the interesting things about the technology is that there's no consolidation of results. So this is the evolution of HR and recruiting into a science, but we don't have peer review of this stuff. It's mm -hmm. relatively clear that in some of the more advanced technical environments, flight risk forecasting is prohibited. And flight risk forecasting is prohibited because the only result you can correlate with having flight risk forecasts is increasing attrition. Because you do exactly the kind of thing that you're talking about. You get a report about somebody, you say they're going, it says they're going to leave, and then you start treating them differently. Whether you work to keep them or work to let them go, you treat them differently once you get the report. And because you treat them differently, it's not like this is your relationship with that employee and that's the only thing that happens. The whole organization understands. You know when somebody stops getting good assignments that something's wrong. And people don't make long-term commitments to projects with people they view as short-timers. The consequence of having a flight risk forecast can be devastating. And, and, and because there's no sharing of how these things work in the various environments they're tested it in, we don't get coherent learning about it. And, and so, so my guess is that that flight risk forecasting stuff that IBM is peddling right now won't last very long. As soon as people start catching on and practitioner organizations start sharing information about what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, two points on that. I'm going to do a pro and a con there. 
So on the pro side of the algorithm, another thing that IBM does in concert with that is this thing called MyCA, which stands for My Career something, I forget. I'll say advancement, although I don't know that's it, but it's called MyCA. Not to be confused with YMCA. <laughs> but basically what it does is it looks at... It will be forever confused with YMCA for me. <laughs> that's how I remember the YMCA. So what it does is it looks at the trajectory of the company and the different projects the company will be implementing to get to where they want to go. And then it will look at the skill set of the workers at the company. And then it will send out an email or a notification of some sort that says, hey, John, our company is moving towards the north and you're here in the south. Why don't you take on some projects like one, two, and three? That'll give you the, the skills you need so that by the time we're ready to move more towards the north, you'll have the skills to go north with us. I'm oversimplifying it, but that's essentially what it is. And I had read recently, I think it was on CNBC, which is where I got this information, that some big percentage of the promotions were as a result of that algorithm. I think like 12% or 18% or something like that, some big number like that. So I can see how the algorithm in that case benefits in sort of a win-win. But on the flip side of that, I have to wonder, to your point, what if I am a IBM worker and I don't get the plum assignments, or and I'd say IBM anywhere who's using an algorithm like this, and I'm not getting the plum assignments, and so I decide to leave, and the algorithm doesn't pick me up, and then, then I'm going to leave so you don't pitch to me and offer anything like that. All right, so then I go, I leave the company or about to leave the company. Then I find out the reason why my career had stymied at the organization is because some machine said that I wasn't going to stay. And so I could get mad and say, well, what did the machine say about me? Can I see the data you've collected about me? Because maybe I can explain this in a way that the machine didn't pick up, but a human being would understand. So do I, do I have control of the data you're collecting on me? Or is that confidential to the company and only HR people can see it and I can't see my permanent record? So that's one. And then two, what if I get really indignant and I decide to sue the company and say, you know what, this company has discriminated against me. I've been discriminated by algorithm which would probably be a future legal term or something. The machine said I was going to leave, so the company did not give me a fair chance, so I'm going to sue the company because the machine discriminated against me, and since you own the machine, I'm, just, I'm suing you. So that's something else I think could possibly happen in the future. What, what do you think about that? That's too far? I think you thing? should go to law school. You just figured out how to make a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really can see in the future a future job, or rather a future business. So if someone's listening and they, they're looking for a hot startup to fund, be, become an algorithm auditor. You know, Go to these companies that say, we use the machine to make sure we're not biased, and then you go and you audit the machine and test it to see if it truly is unbiased. Or maybe go to law enforcement offices and say, let me check your, your magic algorithm machine that matches people's faces with felons in your database because quite recently, I saw this too, quite recently the ACLU did this study where they tested some machine to see how well it identified identified felons. And it, uh, ACLU gave them several politicians' pictures from, um, from Congress, right? And so the machine said about 12 of them were crooks. Now, since they're politicians, but half the machine was correct. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but certain 
But it did pick up 12 or so people that did not have criminal records, but the machine said these are, in fact, felons. So someone who is an algorithm auditor could do stuff like that and probably make a bazillion dollars overnight. Oh, there's, there's already work. I'm already getting sort of uh, requests for that kind of work. That's 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 coming fairly quickly. Oh, really? And part, yeah. Well, part of the problem is bias is a bias is an interesting thing. There are kinds of bias that are illegal, and and those things we need to not do those things because they're illegal. There are kinds of bias that ought to be illegal. And they aren't. Women still are not entitled to equal rights under the American Constitution. And so there's a, a level of bias there that is legal still and shouldn't be. But then there are other kinds of bias that are necessary and important, right? absolutely necessary and important that we understand that we're an electronics company, not a retail store. And so the people that we hire are good at electronics. They're not good at behind the cash register customer service. And that is our bias in hiring. And we wish to get better at that bias, right? Every culture is an expression of bias. And there is a challenging thing that, that I'm sure you know more about than I do in diversity and inclusion that is sort of diversity is the opposite of culture. Diversity is the celebration of difference and culture is the celebration of sameness. So the idea that you don't want, right? The celebration of sameness is all about bias. The celebration of difference is about the opposite of bias. And the right answer for every individual company is some blend of those two things, not the elimination of bias. And so you know, it's like it's like we get we got uh, the discovery of the haircutting razor, and we're going to give everybody a number two buzz now because <laughs> we found the razor. And the truth is, some people need long hair. Uh, <laughs> you know, so this is a tricky area, and the business, the commercial tendency to jump to conclusions, is starting to interfere with our ability to get things done. I think. So, do you think recruiters are going to be replaced by machines? No, no, I don't. I, I'm a big proponent of the Tony Stark model, where machines can augment our abilities, but they won't take away our ability. I mean, they won't take away jobs. It'll just sort of take away different functions, you know. But I, I see some things, of course, being automated and becoming part of the robot world, like you know, resume collection and parsing, interview scheduling, that kind of stuff. But there are certain things that I think that are intrinsically human so that because of that, recruiters don't have to, to worry about it. Like, for example, I could see recruiters being very good, as they already are, closers and negotiators, negotiating with the hiring manager, negotiating with candidates, negotiating over salaries, that kind of thing. I don't see a machine being able to do that. I see recruiters becoming more uh, like brand agents. You know, so it's one thing to say, this job is awesome, this company is awesome, you should come over here and, and work for us. But then when a candidate researches that actual, that same recruiter, they should be able to see on their LinkedIn or on their Facebook or Twitter or something, some sign that they actually believe that they work for a great company. You know, otherwise they may come across as just a used car salesman to a candidate. So a recruiter has to be really good knowing how to champion their company and their company's culture. I see recruiters also being really great marketing strategists, you know, the same way marketers create a persona of the person they want to sell to, same way they build an ad campaign, the same way they may do an email campaign, 
same way they may do an advertising campaign. These are the same skills that recruiters need to have as well. And so I don't see, although some of that can be automated, of course, like tools with ClickIQ, for example, but not all of it. You know, the, the, the skills that take imagination, strategic thought, problem solving, those kind of things, those kind of soft skills you definitely need a human being for, and those are things machines can't do. And so by virtue of all that, I don't see robots taking recruiters' jobs away. They'll just make it easier for the recruiters to actually be more human because it's the humanity that we have that can't be duplicated by a machine and that'll make us more valuable, which is interesting to me, too, from a standpoint of when I read different scholarly papers and I'm really feeling really nerdy <laughs> or reading different articles about how there is the millennials are uh, losing interpersonal skills. I read articles about that, or I read articles about how there's a lack <laughs> or a seemingly lack or a downward trend in emotional intelligence. So I think a lot of people of a certain generation are losing the ability to look someone in the eye and talk to them to give a cohesive argument as to why they like or dislike something. And the loss of those skills will make it harder for them to be a recruiter. So I think if a recruiter wants to stay valuable from this point forward, they really need to focus on building up their interpersonal skills. And one, a few ways to do that is to volunteer. Like, you know, go to a church and serve in a soup kitchen. You know, go to no folks' home as we call it, senior living, <laughs> I guess is the way to say it. Go to a senior living facility and visit with people and talk to them, and you will quickly discover how good you are with people in general. You know, Interact with people, I guess, is the best way that I can say that. Join an organization like Toastmasters so you can get used to standing in front of people and talking. And actually, if you are single, this is sort of a weird, <laughs> a weird suggestion, but I understand that it works. If you are single, go online and do a search on PUA forum. TUA stands for Pickup Artist Forums. And in those forums, you'll see different tips and tricks on how to build a profile on the type of person that you want to pick up, so to speak, the type of language that you can use to attract that person to you. And then using that information, you can fall in love or something similar. Although the aim is different in recruiting, the basic skill sets are still the same. You'll learn how to look at people, how to pick up on nonverbal signals, and that'll help you when you're interviewing people and talking to folks and that kind of thing. I feel like I'm rumbling. Well, well you heard it here first. Jim Stroud recommends <laughs> recommends mastering lines for single bars as a way to become a better recruiter, and that's what recruiters should do. Nice. It'll definitely help you with rejection, too. <laughs> <laughs> so we have blasted this has been a lot of fun we've blasted through our time together take a moment and, and reintroduce yourself and, and if there's something we should dwell on from all of the wisdom you've been dispensing here what is it well look me up on my website Jim Stroud com. you can also look me up on LinkedIn and connect with me and if you are a talent acquisition manager or an HR leader and you want to save money and optimize your job advertising, definitely look up ClickIQ or actually, you know what, send me an email. You can reach me at jim at clickiq.us, C-L-I-C-K-I-Q.us, jim at clickiq.us. And I'll talk to you about that there. Great. Thanks for taking the time to do this, Jim. It's been it's been fantastic to talk with you. You've changed my mind about a couple of things. Now I got to go learn some pickup lines. Um, 
<laughs> that was great. That was great. That was very, very memorable. Thanks for doing this. And I'd love to have you back to do this again sometime. Anytime, sir. You've been listening to HR Examiner Executive Conversations, and we've been talking with Jim Stroud, who is a raconteur, man about town, and the vice president of evangelism at Click IQ, which is a programmatic advertising company for recruitment. Thanks for tuning in this week, and we will see you here, same time, as usual, next week. Bye-bye now. Mm-hmm.